Welcome to another Reuters Institute uh, for the Study of Journalism seminar. I'm really excited to have Dr. Shakira Sain here with us today from the University of Melbourne. Um, Shakira is the author of the book From Victims to Suspects, which she's <laughs> parading for you right now. Um, and I just thought I'd start by um, explaining to you how, how Shakira and I first met, in fact, because we are both Australian. Um, although Shakira um, comes from a, a Pakistani descent, um, we found each other via a journalist friend uh, in Australia when I was a, a journalism academic in Canberra. Um, and I haven't, I haven't told you who I am. That would be useful information for, for all of you in the room and also people who are following um, on the stream. My name's Julie Pizzetti and I'm a senior research fellow here at, uh, at Oxford with the Reuters Institute. Um, and so now I shall begin <laughs> telling you how Shakira and I met. I was researching at the time um, the media representation of Muslim women post-September 11 in an Australian context um, as part of an international, uh, sorry, as part of a national uh, research project that was designed to try to establish um, what the problem was with um, journalistic uh, coverage of multicultural communities in an Australian environment that had been very much polarised around the issue of race and what we refer to as dog whistle politics, um, demonisation of refugees and asylum seekers, an issue that um, was, was prevalent from about 2000, 2001. So this, is, this period that I'm discussing is around 2006, 2007, while I was working on this Journalism in Multicultural Australia project. Um, and I was tasked with um, looking at the way in which um, news organisations within Australia were reporting um, on Islam from the perspective of um, Muslim women's lived experience. And I'd made this determination based on the fact that we spend a lot of time as journalists, um, and I was previously a, a, a journalist uh, with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation before becoming an academic. We spend a lot of time kind of talking about Muslims and about um, terrorism in the context of Islam without speaking with Muslims, particularly Muslim women. And what the research was revealing at the time is that um, Muslim women were both um, the most easily identifiable targets in a, in a diverse community where there was sort of incendiary politics um, connected to Islam because partly of their um, decision to wear the hijab when they chose to do so, or other head covering or head scarves. And in Australia at the time, there was a really heavy politicisation of this issue. We had uh, members of parliament um, suggesting that the burqa and the hijab be variously banned. Um, the tabloid press really um, became um, an agent in inflammatory coverage um, of this. And so a journalist friend introduced me to Shakira, importantly, because I myself am not a Muslim woman, woman. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to perpetuate um, the practice of, you know, a white woman talks about Muslim women's lived experience of um, being harassed on the street because of her visibility. Um, and in parallel, recognising through media analysis that um, Muslim women were not just visible in the community and therefore increasingly targeted as, as sort of symbols of, um, of Islam and what the West determined was um, inappropriate uh, conduct and, and constant association with terrorism. Um, but they were also relatively invisible in the media as people able to speak. 
So I am now going to stop speaking, other than to say um, that uh, as a result of our, our collaboration on research and, and um, uh, ongoing kind of connection, Shakira and I formed a friendship, um, which I think for me demonstrates um, the value of encounter between uh, journalists and um, Muslim women in this case, but any other marginalised or, or minority group that we're reporting on. Um, there's something very powerful about a personal connection, you know, especially as 10 years later now, we look at, um, at journalism increasingly being practised, you know, behind a screen and via a phone. That, that human kind of interaction, I think, is really important. So as I said, I'm going to stop um, talking and pass over to Shakira um, to talk to us a little bit about the work behind um, From Victims to Suspects, which has just been um, published, I think, here in yes. the UK by yeah. Yale yes. Press. Um, and Shakira uh, will talk to you a little bit about um, the work that went into this and what she has found over the years um, during her research, but also will um, have a conversation about what that all means in, in contemporary context. So Shakira, um, under the burqa is the first slide that um, you wanted to talk to. Yes, my book, apart from a short preface, opens with this scene in this photograph. I would have loved to have the photographs in the book, but that's out of budget, but anyway, as in it's expensive to put photographs in books. But yeah, so this, is a, this photograph was actually taken a few months before the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington. Um, it was in February 2001. And this was a gala benefit for Afghan women, to support Afghan women, uh, held in Madison Square Gardens in New York. And as you can see, that's Oprah Winfrey. And a young Afghan woman activist from the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, a young activist, well, they don't use their, they, they have a name that they use in public life and a name that they use at home and, and her public name is, is Zoya. Anyhow, so, um, Ensa had written a new poem for her Vagina Monologues um, play, especially for this event that was called Under the Burqa. And um, she had Zoya bring a burqa over from Pakistan with her for the performance. Um, I did my, some of my field work was with Rawa in, in, the Afghanistan, in Pakistan, sorry, rather than Afghanistan. They do not habitually wear burqas, or they will, although they will put one on for a for a journalist, to or they will arrange for someone else to put one on for a journalist because they know that's the money shot, is all in the burqa. But anyhow, um, at the end of of Oprah reading out this poem, she concluded it by inviting Zoya to join her on the stage, and so Zoya did slowly walk onto the stage, and then Oprah ceremoniously unveiled her, which subsequent analysts, you know, not just me, have seen as symbolizing the American-led rescue mission in Afghanistan. Once it had become clear that they weren't going to be catching bin Laden anytime soon, they shifted ground to saying, oh, well, I'm, they had been saying this beforehand, but they'd been stressed about having liberated Afghan women from the Taliban, and therefore, you know, we, it's, um, it's a successful mission, even though Osama bin Laden was holed up in a cave, well, not a cave, holed, holed up in a rather ostentatious fortress in, in Abbottabad. Sorry, holed up in the cave was where we were collectively, or many of us collectively imagining him until he turned up in Abbottabad. But anyways, so, um, but yeah, this was at 
the outset of the 9-11 era, the dominant image of Afghan women, of Muslim women. Firstly, that burqa because of the focus on Afghanistan, that style of burqa, which Pakistanis call a shuttlecock burqa, because what it looks like. Anyhow. Um, and secondly, that, that, that huge passivity of needing someone else, you know, um, preferably someone famous, to help you to be liberated, to um, you know, incapable even of just lifting a piece of cloth from your face. Somebody else has to do that for you. Okay, so to the next slide, please. Jill. Yes, we okay. have. I have preempted you. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, so this is a little reference from Australian politics, although the um, it originated with. Let me check. Yes, Britain first. I thought Britain first, um, and it's uh, you can see that it's like, and it was then circulate further circulated by a then Australian right wing senator called Jackie Lambie as part of her campaign, and not just her campaign, to ban the burqa in Australia. Um, embarrassingly for Lambie, however, the woman in that photograph is not a terrorist and not religiously conservative, certainly not a religious extremist. She was actually a heroine of law and order. She was a policewoman in Afghanistan in the aftermath of the Taliban rule. She wore that burqa during her work, not full-time, but during her work in order to gain admittance to households and speak to women and to work to combat violence against women until she was herself shot by the Taliban. And Jackie Lambie, after being told this, said that she had known that backstory all along and she had intended in circulating that image, it, it was meant to be a tribute to Malakaka, which, you know, I don't think. Anyway, but I'm interested in the, the contrast then from this passive uh, woman under the blue burqa in Madison Square Gardens who needed help to even remove her scarf, let alone you know, um, wider issues of emancipation. And this one of this veiled woman as this you know, danger, as this threat, and, um, and it will have to be forcibly taken away from those women rather than the expectation after 9-11 was that Afghan women were just going to be celebrate by tossing off their burqas in large numbers, which didn't really happen. Um, but, um, I was in Pakistan immediately after 9-11 and, um, yeah, and that was what the story that journalists were gearing up to, to run. You know, Afghan women suddenly free and expecting to see, you know, women in the street just go, whoa, you know, free at last. Not how it worked out. Anyways, okay, so then can we have the next slide? Okay, this is a shot from Australia in uh, 2007 on Cronulla Beach. And um, have people heard or recall the Cronulla riots? Julie, so, do you want to do the Cronulla riots? Sure. Mm -hmm. so, so the Cronulla riots um, happened in 2004-2005. Uh, I might have my timelines slightly awry. Somewhere in the mid-2000s, yeah, yeah. there were riots on a very famous Australian beach, symbolic of um, Australian life and culture being beach-loving, sun-loving, family-going. Um, and there was a call to action by a... Um, what Americans would refer to as a shock jock, a man called Alan Jones, which resulted in, frankly, hordes of people um, heading to the beach on Boxing Day, so the day after Christmas Day. It's sort of a typical um, day for Australian family gatherings. 
Um, and what ensued were race riots, where anybody who was um, slightly, um, you know, had the appearance of someone from the Middle East or Southern Europe, anybody who looked to, um, to people who were there to um, what they thought was, you know, defend Australian culture and values. Anybody who'd looked unlike them, i.e. a white Australian, won't even get into the issues around Indigenous Australian history, um, was targeted, including not just um, Muslims from South Asia and Africa and the Middle East, but also Lebanese Christians and a range of other people who were um, caught up in, in what was a very ugly chapter in Australian history, which was in direct response, really, to not both a kind of tabloid media campaign um, and also a, a political um, crisis uh, when it came to multicultural Australia. And that was the context in which uh, this project that I mentioned before that I was working on um, was triggered. The federal government decided to fund a project to find out what was wrong with the media why was the media being so um, pillorying of, of Islam and, and uh, Muslim Australians? And the answer, of course, was in part because of the jingoistic politics of the day. Um, so that's the shorthand for the Cronulla riots. And this imagery is really important because of um, how it continues internationally, right? Yeah. And so the young woman in this photograph is Mekalala. And... In the wake of the Cronulla riots, the Cronulla sport, actually surf lifing Australia was already trying to get more diverse lifeguards. They were already running surf education programs. I will just add, there are, have been just over the last summer a very large numbers of drowning on Australian beaches and uh, very disproportionately Indian international students. And um, if you're planning a beach holiday in Australia, please swim between the flags. <laughs> that's where the life, that's, Community service announcement. Yeah, that's where the lifeguards are. But anyhow, um, yeah. And so they recruited... Cronulla was also... Um, there's a train line from the western Sydney suburbs to Cronulla. So although there aren't many Muslims in Cronulla, that's somewhere they often go. And so... Um, and as part of this surf that's on the same wave program, um, they asked a, a local um, Lebanese... Or of Lebanese background designer who'd been designing sportswear um, to, for Muslim women and girls to, design, to provide them with this burkini that yellow and red is the surf life saving colours and what all the lifeguards wear. And so um, she did, she did the lifeguard training, it was on TV and at one stage you couldn't walk into an Australian airport I don't think without seeing that part, you know, and it was used by the Australian newspaper, which had run a lot of quite a lot of anti-Muslim commentators, you know. But um, but they had a, a marketing campaign at the time um, um, called goodness, what was it? I know it was, was around it? inclusivity and diversity. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And um, that's Australian. That's right. And and the logo that and the or the script that was read over the top of that image was when the old and the new are both true blue. That's Australian. So this is the, you know, Australia changing, Australia shifting in this, you know, positive direction that um, young Muslims of Lebanese background are becoming lifeguards, and that the and that the beach culture has found a place for them, you know, anyhow. But then skip on to um, yeah, here by contrast we have this image from uh, Nice in two thousand seventeen. And you would, um, I'm not sure how much to assume people already know. Do people remember the burkini ban? 
In France? France? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, this is when the story really went global. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. Australian you know, designer had come up with the burkini and um, it was being sold in France. And France, with its history of, um, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité, um, despite a strong commitment to gender equality, was not necessarily united on an understanding that mm. women choosing what they should, what they wanted to wear as Muslims, was okay, right? Yeah. And as you can see, the burkini is not; it doesn't conceal the face like a burqa. I think I would say Zanetti, the designers. So this is the woman here in the burkini. Um, yeah, well, she wasn't wearing one. She no. was just wearing too many clothes. Yeah. And they told her to remove just, some of them. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> Note <Sorry>. to self. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it was the fact that it had the word, that like burkini is like a portmanteau word, burka and burkini. burkini. And um, although it doesn't really resemble either of those garments. But anyhow. Um, but the fact that it had burka in the name of the garment, I think, also was a reason why it was seen as like alien mm. and unwanted. And several French councils moved to ban wearing the burkini on the beach. And those bans were overturned, but there are still bans in, on French private, be private beaches. You know, still have um, signs showing women in various attires and, and like ones, the skimpy ones have a big tick and the, you know, and the ones not even as covered as that, but ones that in there and there with a big mm. no. Um, and yeah, and so it's, I find it interesting the way that Islamophobia manifests globally, but there are always these local quirks, but they also feed into each other because after these stories about burkinis being banned in France, um, there was a, not really a push for, or at all a push for banning burkinis in Australia because it, well, it, it, despite the fact that women are bullied for wearing it and all the rest of it. Um, but the Australian, which, which back in the day had used Mekalala in their marketing campaign and had um, promoted it as a positive step forward, then started running editorials saying, actually, the French have a point. Maybe banning it is, is going a bit far, but women should really consider the offence that they are providing in wearing this garment. Um, it's, it's scary for people to see them wearing it on the beach. It does have an association with terrorism, even though we accept that you're not the actual terrorist. And it's judgmental towards Australian women wearing skimpier clothing because by Makes wearing... Makes feel uncomfortable when yeah, we're yeah. Yes, undressed. Yes, you, you, you see that picture and you think, that woman thinks I'm a slut. Yeah, exactly. You know, and um, that she's body shaming me, which I think is you know, just basically projection. But yeah, there were media stories on both sides of this. And I will say, I've, um, if I can plug another book, I've co-authored on this topic with, uh, anyhow, for the Rutledge Handbook of Islamophobia. But yeah, I found it interesting the way that Australian media responding to the French ban, there was on the one hand that line about, you know, face it, ladies, it is an, it, it, it's, is an offensive government. But there was also quite a lot of line of, um, I know we, everybody thinks Australians are racist, but look at France. <laughs> They're way more racist than we are. We don't, we're not trying to stop anybody from wearing burkinis. And look at that. You know, they're the real racists and Muslims living in Australia should just shut up and count their blessings and wear their burkinis to the beach. Only after they're finished denouncing terrorism because yeah, yeah, that's the responsibility yeah, of every yeah, Muslim yes. every time there's a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. Yes, completely. <laughs> And um, yeah, but um, 
yeah, but, but like, so I find Australia and American actually attitudes on European Islamophobia, which it is terrifying, the rise of the far right, well, globally, but in Europe in particular. Um, but yeah, it is used as this, um, well, on the one hand, that if Australia and the US and Canada don't take strong steps, then their Muslim communities will get out of hand as well. Mm. So we need to learn and jump in early if we don't want to be France, if we don't want to be Germany. You know, um, yeah. if, and, and if we want to keep our women safe in the way that non-Muslim French women and German women and Spanish women are, are no longer, apparently, because of the threat and the shift in, in cultural norms. That, and, and women as the you know, transmitters of cultural norms, so that's apart from being perceived as you know, in league with terrorists, but they're also changing our societies in ways that don't like and reversing all the progress on feminism that everybody thought they were making until the last US and, and, um, and Brexit and... Um, we could and, go on. Yes, we could go on. <laughs> anyway. The march. Mm. Um, just, I was in, uh, where was I? <laughs> I've been traveling a lot this past month. Um, I wasn't in France. I was watching France 24, a, mm. uh, a, a French uh, public broadcaster, um, while I was uh, in the field doing research um, in India, in fact, uh, just last week. And there's another story that many of you might have seen, um, which is very reminiscent of the Burkini debate, in fact, um, there was a reporting reference constantly to the Burkini debate. Um, in France last week, Decathlon, which is a, a, a French sports manufacturer, um, cancelled orders of a um, hijab designed for running. Um, so it was made from lightweight, you know, sweat absorbent material um, for women who wanted to run or do athletics who had um, a desire to wear the hijab. And this um, was stunning to me because 2016 was the Burkini debate. I was living in France at the time. Nothing has changed, it seemed to me, in three years in terms of the reaction to this. So there was a very inflammatory conversation about how this was un-French and it was anti-feminist to even consider, for a French brand, to consider importing and selling this particular piece of art, of clothing. Um, and uh, the story that I was watching was a story produced by a, a, a French man. <laughs> um, and we heard the voices of, um, of many people, um, none of whom were identifiably a, a Muslim woman um, in discussing this. That the company actually tried to defend its uh, decision and, and was going ahead with the sale of this, um, this piece of clothing, but uh, the public pressure was too much. Um, and at the end of this week of debate back and forth on, within French media about whether it was appropriate or not appropriate for um, Muslim women in France to be able to buy this thing, it became clear that other companies were already selling it, but they weren't French companies. So there was less kind of, you know, um, identity with French values. And treason. All of that. So all the sort of nationalistic um, There was a bit ideas. of a fuss when Marks and Spencer's... Maybe it was Burkini's that Marks... Marks and Spencer's was had um, some kind of modest fashion garment happening, and there was a you know, and and there was angry comments from various I forget which but right wing British politicians, and yeah, and and a certain amount of backtracking I think, which just involved having them on less prominent 
display. display. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in the case of this latest episode in France, the, mm-hmm. the, the minister, fi- finally, a, a voice of reason, the minister for gender equality in France mm-hmm. actually said um, she felt very uncomfortable with a notion that um, that we must decry a Muslim woman's choice to wear a particular piece of clothing if it was in fact her choice because this was an anti-feminist position and French feminism is fiercely divided on these issues. But she basically said enough of dictating to women what they should wear, um, which has been an interesting um, progress and progression to, to watch um, at, at that level of uh, French politics. But what does it say based on your research over you know a decade and a half or more on this theme that we are constantly coming back to these debates um, that connect what women, what Muslim women, women choose to wear and the ways in which the West is processing and dealing with um, terrorism as it's connected to Islam. Mm. And, and what is you know, the role of uh, the media in this process, the news media? Yeah. Media sees particular forms of dress as being signifiers of authenticity. And so um, the, at, at various community events, Muslim community events, where there are women dressed in all kinds of different styles, but it's the ones who fit that particular, you know, the ones in the more conservative outfits, you know, um, or alternatively, the ones in the sort of cool hipster headscarves. That's a popular shot as well. but. Um, that are um, featured, and I think that leads people in the wider community to overestimate exactly how much of a norm it is because the women in the headscarves are the ones who are on telly all the time. Um, I'm not um, by, anyhow, yeah. Um, I just want to, at one point I remember you telling me when you were an academic in Canberra being asked by a local newspaper to put a hijab on your laptop, on your computer yes. for a photograph about a story on women wearing yeah, it was on Muslim, No, it was on Muslim women in cyberspace. That's right. So they took the, you know, they took the photograph and then I got a message saying the editor wanted one with me wearing a headscarf. And I go, well, I'm not going to just wear a headscarf for a you know, newspaper photograph. I'm not going to, you know, I put it on when I go to mosque or certain context, but not just for your newspaper photograph. And so then they got back and said, okay, what about a novelty picture if you put the headscarf over the computer instead? That would work. But we need something to tell, the, to tell readers what the story's about. And if you're not wearing a headscarf, apparently their headline will not be sufficient. You know, and, yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, it's, it's, it's very reductive. And it's also that like, I know um, various Muslim female friends say we should just you know, call the moratorium and say, we are not going to talk about it anymore because we're not then asked to talk about other issues as well. We're on the fashion papers, on the pages, but we're not on the, we're certainly not on the financial pages or not in in significant numbers. We're not on the international relations pages. That's for the boys. I mean, we are as victims in various conflicts and dictatorship, but but, but not as commentators, not as um, reporters, you know. And, and, and not as subjects of media coverage, that's um, where not considered, I mean, and that's a broader pattern of sexism yeah. in media to begin with, but it's um, underlined. This is an intersection though, isn't it, of, yeah. of um, gender and mm. religious bigotry and mm. racism all uh, yeah. working to disempower yeah. Muslim women yeah. to an extent. Yes, for, for sure. And, um, 
this is a side note, but I'm always interested going between Britain and Australia, the different sort of timelines that they're on because of different migration patterns. And so um, because the largest country of origin for Muslim migrants to Australia is Lebanon and headscarves were a norm there long before they were a norm in South Asia, which is where the you know, overwhelming majority of Muslims living here come to. And so um, because of that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit nationalistic and say that the Australian Muslim women were um, uh, more interesting on the fashion front for a long time than the British Muslim women. And after 9-11, there was a lot of, about community, and, and again after Cronulla, about community harmony, fashion events and, and you know, and catwalk shows and, and, and young women talking about their, their dress, not just in terms of you know, modesty and what it meant to them in terms of religiosity, but in terms of style and, um, and what, you know, in, in, in con relatively conventional fashion terms, I will say that British Muslim women have, are now catching up. Um, but yeah, <laughs> good for them. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, yeah. So, so, but but that was a, certainly another media angle. Was the was these you know fashion as community harmony and yeah. and, and, and good yes, and, yeah yeah and good Muslim women who were out there just wearing cool clothes, you know, not becoming suicide bombers, you know, and 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 wearing hijab. You know, and, and not wearing dowdy what um, Sydney friends refer to as the Bankstown hijab, which is a very Muslim suburb of Sydney. And the stereotype of the Bankstown hijab is a sort of stiff, unyielding, um, plain fabric. You know, um, and so the good news stories like the about Muslim women tend to have the more the more fashionable ones, the ones with 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 the funky scarves. You know the um, the, an, another book that was published a few years ago called Generation M has a whole section on that. And, mm. and yeah, anyway. So this is an image um, up here from London in 2017. Do oh, you yes. want to talk yeah, to yes. about that? Yeah. Yes, let's move on from fashion. Every time I write an, uh, get asked to write about hijab, I always swear I will never do it again. And, but then it comes back in so many different variations. Go, oh, here we go. But yeah, um, yeah so this photograph was taken in the immediate aftermath of the terror attack on London Bridge. And, um, and yeah, as you see, it's a woman on her mobile phone and the, uh, and the casualties of the terrorism in the background. And it was taken by a photographer who did not see this as being shocking behaviour on her part and who came out afterwards to, to say so. But it was then shared by an account which was subsequently um, cancelled by Twitter because it was a Russian bot, despite their username being Texan, Texas Lone Star. But anyway, Texas Lone Star posted this photograph with the, the hashtags pray for London and hashtag ban Islam. And the caption underneath read, Muslim woman pays no attention to the terror attack, casually walks past a dying man while checking her phone. And some mainstream media outlets took up this theme of this woman who was ignoring yeah, the kind of yeah, 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 yeah. 
and the photographer noted that the, he'd taken more than one photograph of her and they were all up for syndication. In some of them, her distress is more readily apparent. She herself um, spoke to The Guardian afterwards and saying she was you know, in shock. And I mean, don't we all when, there's, when we've had a near miss or, in the, or, or even just if we're in town and we hear that something's happened, don't, isn't that what we all do? Get on our phone to check that the people we know are safe to let other people know that we're safe. But um, when you're wearing a headscarf, that apparently is not an acceptable way to behave. Um, yeah, so, um, but I also think it's interesting because as I think you would probably all know, there have been Muslim casualties in all the major attacks. There were Muslims who died in New York and Washington on September 11th. There were Muslims who died in the 2007, what used to be the London attacks, but there have been others since then, tragically. And um, Muslims who died in the various attacks in France, Muslims who died in... And never mind that globally, the overwhelming majority of victims of Muslim extremist violence have been Muslim. But on top of that possibility of dying in a random attack, that Muslim women are very aware that speaking out will draw flack, that politicians will single you out, that you'll get a lot of hate mail. And it doesn't matter if you're speaking out on something political or not. Like I know one friend who published a children's picture book, you know, for like five, six year olds. But no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to be nice to children while Muslim. You're not allowed to write stories with kids who are called you know, Jamila or Omar and little girls who are, whose mothers are wearing headscarves, forget about it. But, so, but even just something as innocent as being somewhere where someone takes your photograph after a horrific event has taken place can still make you this object of intense fear and hatred, can still draw that type of flack. So um, on top of you might get have your headscarf ripped off as you take public transport, on top of you might be come under attack. Spat on, have yeah, rocks yes, that. You, these are that. things that happened in the Australian yeah. context. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then you might also find yourself part of an international media storm mm. just for happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And let's come to this international media yes, storm. Of course. This is yeah. um, Shamima Bega uh, mm. Begum. I can't remember yeah. how to accurately pronounce her name, but... Mm -hmm. She is the young woman who at 15 was groomed by ISIS and who went to um, Syria. Yes. Uh, and mm. essentially became the bride of a, um, an ISIS, you know, caliphate fighter. Mm. And that is playing out um, now still uh, in the UK media because of debates around whether she should be expelled from the UK or whether she should be... Um, brought home to be rehabilitated given her her teenage, um, you know, she was 15 at the time and so on. So, um, Shakira, what did you want to say about this particular case? Yeah. Um, it's When there first started to be reported about young women in particular leaving their homes and communities in the West to travel to Syria and Iraq to join Islamic State, um, I wrote an article for Crikey, which is an online news website in Australia, about that type of media coverage, which was, head I didn't choose the headline, but it was headlined, Why We Can't Get Enough of Jihadi Sluts. 
because in that, that was the tone of a lot of the coverage because they were going there and being set up with husbands. Mm. And if that husband blew himself up or, was other, or otherwise didn't survive, they would be immediately remarried. So that, um, and it, the coverage of the, the female ISIS supporters was more sensationalized and um, more hate-filled, really, than the coverage of the male supporters. And we can see that now with Shamina Begum because there have been male supporters of ISIS returning quietly to the UK. I'm sure they're still being watched, but they haven't become the sort of hate figures that she has. And that particular photograph is from a um, shooting range in the UK, which, okay, uses a variety of, you know, um, images of like Theresa May and Boris Johnson, whatever, for target practice as well. And they said that they'd um, included her in their roundup due to popular demand from their customers. But I would say that there's a difference between, I mean, I, I am uncomfortable with using images of any real person for target practice, mm. but setting that aside, I think there's a difference between, as Julie said, she was 15 when she left the country. She is still in realistic physical danger. And, um, and also because when you choose to f fire shots at an image of a woman dressed in that way, it's other women also that are in your sights. Other women who dress in a similar way, who share the same ethno-religious um, label, but may have very different religious beliefs. You're firing those shots at all of them, and us. And it isn't just, so it is seen as a, as a much more um, broad threat. Yeah, target. Yeah, yeah target, yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to go and move on to questions shortly, but just um, I'd, I'd like to know from you, um, from your experience both as a researcher and um, you've, you've written quite frequently, as you, as you suggested, um, for Australian media and occasionally uh, internationally about issues of um, this nature. But what have you concluded at this point about the ways in which news organisations, journalists, um, might be able to approach um, reporting and storytelling on issues that either involve Muslim women or uh, catch them in the net, if you like. Um, what are some ways to consider changing practice to ensure that there's you know, accountability in the reporting, but also respect? Um, well, some of the points that you've already made about, well, just asking them in the first place, which, doesn't, which still happens depressingly less often than you'd think, there are a, a very significantly more Muslim media practitioners and Muslim women media practitioners than there were immediately after 9-11. I had absolutely no trouble getting an Australian newspaper to pay my airfare to Pakistan because nobody else was there putting up their hand. And, um, but I will add also that there's a risk then that you are confined to those stories. And, um, and not ex Muslim journalists and Muslim women journalists in particular. That's their beat. Um, they're not considered likely to have anything interest much interesting to say about anything else. And it can be a bit of a ghetto. I mean, I write about, okay, I write about, okay, for um, similarly, um, I won't say narcissistic, 
self-involved reasons. I also write a lot about disability, but I do that off my own bat. People don't approach me and ask me to write about disability. They ask me to write about the hijab again, <laughs> or halal certification, just for a little bit of variety from the fashion to the cooking table. <laughs> if it's not yeah. what you wear, it's what you eat. Yeah, 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 quite. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, and as various women have said, this obsession with hijab just means that, it, that talking about the serious stuff just gets left to the men because we're too busy talking about headscarves continually. And, and yeah. there's this, as, you've, if you, as you have said and you have mm. written, there's this double bind effect, I think you refer yeah. to it as, mm. where you're not only either misrepresented or stereotypically represented um, by media organisations mm. and others um, commentating in this space, but you're constantly feeling a need to, um, to not critique or condemn the sexism that does exist um, within um, Muslim communities um, and the actions of men that need to be condemned because you feel as a result of this, um, this uh, judgment on, on, on Muslims and Islam broadly, a kind of reluctance to add to the critique. Do you want to add to that? Yes, for sure. Bec having myself written about um, various problematic male community leaders in Australia, and then you are immediately snowed under with requests to repeat this and to, um, and to be caught up in that wider anti-Muslim discourse. And I can see, it's, it's shifting, I have to say. I think there's just too many women with, uh, is it an Australian expression to say, no more shits to give? And, um, <laughs> I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, but I think we've just shared it internationally. So. Yes, okay. Um, who have, who, um, I know with me it was just about a physical reaction. I had been um, keeping certain thoughts to myself and it just reached a point where I couldn't do that anymore and where I um, needed to put my concerns, and not just in spaces that were like Muslim only because they're very limited and most Muslims get their news from the mainstream media too. You know, they're not reading um, limited community outlets such as they exist. Um, yeah, and I expected that that would, I, I thought I might lose actual friends over that, not because they're conservative or support sexism, but just because, you know, oh, you're, um, to use a common phrase, hanging the dirty laundry. And I did get some of that, but, and partic but nearly all of it from males, men rather than women. And I, I didn't have a, any negative responses from anybody whose opinion really mattered to me. I didn't lose friends. And even some of those who were not friends they got they got past it, you know. They did get over it. We're we're, uh, you know, we we can be in the same room. We can have conversations. We can work. We we can work together in not as in paid employment, but we can undertake community advocacy together still. So um, that's I I think it's because the level of crisis is such that we can't afford to mm. not be. Um, to, to, to just be remaining in these, in, in these little cul-de-sacs, we have to be out in the world. Which makes it even more important for, um, for 
news organisations and journalists around the world to really bring Muslim women in in a more uh, mainstream way to conversations mm -hmm. um, about a whole range of issues. I mean, and feminist um, media critics um, have long commented on um, the importance of expanding the role of women in uh, journalism, both you know behind mm -hmm. the editor's desk and on camera, but also in terms of the the sources um, that they use. Obviously, you're adding an additional layer to this uh, to this situation when taking into account the need to not just be thinking about uh, gender representation, but that intersection of gender and mm. and um, culture and race and religion. Um, I think we might leave our conversation here and mm -hmm. go to audience conversation. And for those people who are watching um, this online, this is where we're going to leave you. Um, Shakira Hussein, who is visiting from the University of <coughs> Melbourne, has been with us for this conversation. Uh, and From Victims to Suspects is the name of the book, Muslim Women Since 9-11. Thanks very much, Shakira. Thanks, Julie. It's been good. Cool.